0: Thank you for your practice. Nice to sit and meditate with you again. I enjoyed listening to the rain. Toward the end of our period of practice, I think I gave a full uh, full explanation of equanimity in three lines. Neither for nor against. Seeing our preferences but not believing in our own internalized hierarchy. a mind resting in the middle between two points. (coughs) Though I have a few more things to say about equanimity. Um, In fact, I want to do something different over the next couple of months. Um, I will give a series of talks on equanimity through the remainder of March, April, and May, a series of talks all connected one building uh, one building upon the other I'm surprised I haven't done that before so we'll see how that goes and if that material feels complete. Uh, before the end of May of course uh, I'll just let it finish naturally and move on to something else and also if I feel like there's more to share or more to say uh, I've given myself permission to carry that project into June so Today being the first in a series of talks on the same talk topic equanimity um, today we'll be looking at the quality and characteristics of equanimity along with explaining the place what I call the placement of equanimity meaning where where are these teachings in the Recording recorded teachings of the Buddha. Uh, What other teachings are connected or auxiliary in some way? How can we use what we've studied so far and other practices to illuminate Uh, the subtle teaching of equanimity, the subtle dharma? So why equanimity? Why give a lot of attention to equanimity? Uh, well, one is, uh, with full transparency, it, it's simply of great interest to me. It's uh, not that other teachings are, are not, and some of you who have been coming around for a long time, you know, without me saying so directly, you, I'm sure you have your own sense of, of what teachings are um, Are given the most attention. I guess it's fair to say we do, as teachers, give more attention to certain ideas or themes than others. And I don't know if it's clear to the community that equanimity is one of those teachings for me, but but it is, and maybe I reflect on it more than I teach about it. But I don't think I don't think we do the study and practice of the Dharma. Justice without uh, consistently and thoroughly exploring equanimity, reflecting on equanimity. And furthermore, I think the fruit of equanimity is a realistic goal for us. Uh, And yet, at the same time, it's one of the highest markers of growth, according to the Dharma. Equanimity helps us gain a footing in a very unstable world, a world absent predictability, full of changes and difficult experiences. Both the practical nature and the artfulness of equanimity is that it doesn't require the outside world to be different than what it is for us to feel inwardly more stable, more confident, not arrogant, confident, capable, and better able to respond to life in ways that are more skillful, more self-regulated, and uh, more wise And lastly in this uh, short list of reasons why I think it's important to look thoroughly at equanimity um, the development of equanimity is a path of practice that naturally that naturally weaves itself into the parallel paths of wisdom in the heart qualities of kindness and compassion. <clears throat> so in this way, I see it as a core teaching that is integrative, if you will, integrative. It, it helps to connect other important Buddhist concepts, practices, and insights. I want to share two images from the Pali Canon, from the Upachala Sutta. Of course, these are stanzas, but I choose the word image for a reason that you'll that will make itself clear and that you'll understand. The imagery is very, very strong. All the world is on fire. All the world is burning. All the world is ablaze. All the world is quaking. In the Upachala Sutta, we are confronted with a view of the world which is, well, if we borrow directly from the sutta, on fire, burning, burning, Ablaze and quaking. Quaking. So, certainly, the world that we live in together uh, is very much like this sometimes, right? Um, I think people who are drawn to the path of Dharma uh, have felt the world ablaze and quaking. And I think it's fair to say. that our mind is like this often. Of course, the Dharma is trying to educate us around a certain particular principle that uh, what we see is, at least in part, uh, in proportion to what's occurring in our own mind. And it goes the other way as well, you know. The world is often very hostile and uh, this reverberates within ourselves, right? whether it be due to persistent emotional difficulties, fear of what the future will hold for us, regrets about the past, challenges due to compromised health, insecurities at work or in relationship, or the ongoing challenges inherent to our evolving identities in an often hostile And an equitable world. The truth of living communally is that sometimes, due to our social location, we have less freedom than others, and sometimes we have more freedom. There is the constant threat of loss and gain. We wonder where we stand in the vast complex web of social and relational opportunities and missed opportunities. We wonder about our fate, the fate of those we love and care for. And there is the literal burning of the earth due to our historical neglect of nature. Rising temperatures, destructive wildfires, rising oceans, new deadly diseases. All the world is quaking, said Upachala. However in the same sutta and in the next stanza Upachala goes on to say that which does not quake or blaze that to which worldlings do not resort where there is no place for Mara that is where my mind delights that is where my mind delights this short sutta passage represents an exchange between the nun, uh, the bhikkhuni upachala, and mara. Mara is sometimes referred to as the evil one, usually capital T, capital E, capital O, the evil one. Mara, the evil one, is a personification of greed, hatred, and delusion in the early Buddhist teachings. Mara's role in Buddhist literature is to remind us that we all have an inner Mara. We have habits, we have temptations uh, that disrupt the stability of mind, the focus of our practice, steering us us away from our good intentions. Each of us has adopted a set of beliefs and a set of habits that magnify the burning of the world. Um, In fact... Uh, and to use a cliche, I think uh, we are all prone to pouring fuel on the fire, in our in our own way, and in 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 ways that many of us share. In this sutta, when the nun Upachala expressed her understanding, in the face of that wisdom, Mara gave up and went away. And some of you may be familiar with other. Sutta stories that feature Mara. And basically, Mara works really hard to convince us um, to do stupid things. Mara works really, really hard to um, perpetuate our unskillfulness or our conditioning. And it's only after some kind of progression, usually, in these teaching stories, where the other character, if you will, uh, makes clear over and over and over again that they're wise. Mara gets frustrated and leaves. They just disappear. They're gone. (laughs) Um, Mara doesn't like to lose. Mara doesn't have a lot of equanimity. So we could say that following Mara's departure, Upachala was able to rest. Uh, And by rest, we mean uh, that uh, Upachala was able to um, be secluded from the hindrances, her troubling mind states. So the image that we are left with here is that while the world is quaking, both literally and metaphorically, there's a place of steadiness and balance available within us within our mind in this place of steadiness or balance is upeka equanimity upeka is the Pali word uh, typically defined as uh, as equanimity or balance or steadiness And there's several different ways that if we if we comb through the sutras, there's several different ways that equanimity is expressed, which I think comes with some also comes with some strong imagery. And I'd like to share a few of those examples with you tonight. The first of these is unshakable balance of mind unshakable balance of mind such strong language wouldn't we like to always have an unshakable balance of mind what comes up for me is the, um, the image of a mountain or like a really really strong tree you know maybe an older tree that's had a good 80 or 90 years in the The tree is really really big, it's really wide, it's really tall. The limbs extending off the main trunk are are also sturdy. Unshakable balance of mind. A state of mind that is steady, uncompromising in its ability to view conditions with neutrality. uncompromising in its ability to view conditions with neutrality. Neutrality is sometimes viewed as uncaring, Um, but rather neutrality in this particular case is possible when we understand the principle of cause and effect, karma. Um, It's not that neutral is uncaring, but rather that neutral or equanimity recognizes that there is a reason for events, that is beyond our immediate control. So equanimity recognizes complexity. Neutrality, neutrality of view or equanimity means not being at war with natural laws and principles with the way things are even if we want to work to change them in the future. So one such way equanimity is described in the suttas is unshakable balance of mind. Another way is a boundless quality of mind. Boundless quality of mind. And this is referring to an experience of mind that is without boundaries. Boundaries are self-created, we are taught, essentially comprised of ideas and concepts based on likes and dislikes. While it's okay to have preferences, and everyone does have preferences, probably enlightened beings still have preferences, how we relate to those preferences in life determines how much we suffer. So this is driving home the point that freedom has to do with certain types of relationships, certain ways of relating and responding to present moment experience. These, um, I want to say artificial, these meaning that uh, not representing the true nature that the Dharma points toward, These artificial lines that we draw around our experiences create suffering because they are an attempt to control reality, ultimately. It's as if we're saying, I will accept life, but on a set of conditions based on my preferences. The Buddha was saying, don't do that. Stop doing that. So we we make up artificial boundaries. We, we get tricked, we get duped. Uh, in fact, we think those artificial boundaries are going to make us happy. So on one side of the boundary are those things we like and which match an idea we hold in our head, in our mind, of happiness. On the other side of the boundary are those things we don't like, the things we think we need to avoid or get rid of to be happy. Um both sides of the line there is suffering this is really important on both sides of the line there is suffering so this begs the question well then where is the mind of equanimity which so just hold that question right because what we're told is we can't really rest over here and we can't really rest over here either so on both sides of the line there's suffering On the one side, we wanna get rid of certain experiences. On the other side of the line, we suffer when we lose what once brought us happiness. The movement of resistance and clinging in the mind disrupts the conditions necessary for real happiness and equanimity. So in a sense, equanimity is boundless because it is inclusive rather than exclusive it is accepting rather than negating open rather than closed flexible and pliable rather than rigid and fixed a third way that equanimity is presented and in fact there's uh, there's three terms here one I referenced earlier by way of a definition, uh, neutrality of mind. Uh, There in the middleness. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. There in the middleness. So this is starting to point to where the mind rests if it's not on one side or another of a line we've drawn between pleasant and unpleasant. I'm not even sure middleness is a word, but I, I love what it, it, it evokes. There in the middleness. And I mentioned there were three phrases here. The third is evenness. Evenness. To me, middleness suggests a place between two points not a place without reference points and i think this is important not void of feeling but rather void of reactivity to feeling and for tonight the last and i think this is the fourth 1 2 Three, four. For tonight, the fourth example or way um, that equanimity is uh, is explained or defined is as a gateway, as a gateway specifically to enlightenment. This. Uh, provides a sense that we um, we go into or through equanimity to get somewhere. It might even imply that if we're interested in this idea of awakening, we have we have to go through equanimity. Like we can't go we can't go around it. We can't decide it's not important because it's it's subtle or complex or could take time to develop, or maybe we're more interested in other teachings. And you'll see though that the Dharma, of course, is not linear. Uh, experientially, it's not linear. We, we have all these lists that, that sometimes present in a linear fashion. But the transmission of the Dharma and the transformation of one's own mind is, is definitely not linear. But you'll see nonetheless in some of these lists Uh, this week and in future weeks that there's this um, there's this progression there's this passage and we keep moving into and through equanimity to get somewhere else So, so how do we understand briefly this idea of gateway to enlightenment well because equanimity is the culminating factor of the seven factors of awakening. Two, equanimity is the balance of wisdom and compassion. And three, equanimity is the balance of satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness in the Brahma Viharas. So let's talk a little bit about equanimity's characteristics. Um, How does it shape itself experientially? How do we recognize it? What does it feel like? What does it look like? I think this begins to get into, um, we begin to see some overlap with other teachings that we uh, are probably familiar with. The absence of equanimity shows us when we have lost right view, an understanding of how dukkha, or suffering, is created and alleviated. We have become removed from important insights necessary to keep us from getting caught up in unskillful perceptions and habit patterns. The absence of equanimity shows us patterns of self-making. I did this. I didn't do this. I'm no good at that. They did this to me. I'm not getting what I want. I don't want this. I want that. And on and on and on. When equanimity is not present, it feels like us against the world. I can remember. um, Yeah, it's not that difficult to remember that. uh, Like, I don't feel it today. (laughs) And maybe I didn't feel it yesterday. But that sense of like me against the world, uh, that's not that far away in memory, right? That we get caught in that, you know, uh, sense of overwhelm or particularly at certain life stages, you know, you know, there's a particular challenge. Okay, I can handle one challenge. There's a second challenge. Okay, well, maybe I can handle two challenges. And then a week later, there's like, we're holding five really difficult Dilemmas, challenges, there's a sense that, like, is the world out to get me this week or or what? Or or this month or this year, right? From a Dharma perspective, the point is to see and to connect with the feeling of me or I during those occasions, right? To not turn away, but to uh, examine closely. That felt sense of me, that felt sense of I when equanimity is not present, it feels like the world is against us it is uh, it's a very dualistic relationship, very distinct fabrication of self and other inside and outside. Mm. Beyond the conceptual self, there's a palpable self, the entity to whom things happen. We, can, we could call that the experiencer. In this uh, self, this one who experiences things uh, can't be satisfied for very long when there's this stark sense of duality. Conversely, when equanimity is present, things are just as they are. We've heard that before, many of us who've spent a lot of time in the insight community, and it might sound familiar, but it's it's quite vague. <laughs> or just so obvious, you know, we don't we don't think much of it. Um, and yet it's a it's it's a radical teaching that uh That wants us to understand it better, I think when equanimity is present things are just as they are mental and physical phenomena seem to be removed from a qualitative scale, no longer measured by the mere eye, and no longer referenced as good or bad, right or wrong the stance if you will, of the self is more observational than it is confrontational. Things are happening not so much to someone, but rather they are flowing through awareness, an awareness that is seemingly less self referential. And there's also a heart quality. I think we position, and maybe rightly so, and, and I'm not so sure it's a, necessarily a problem. However, we, we mainly position equanimity over on the wisdom end of a scale. But the balancing heart quality, um, uh, equanimity is, it, it consists of the balancing heart quality of non-attachment it is it is it attachment that allows the mind to remain stable without attachment we don't get trapped by selfishness in the absence of selfishness life is not about getting as many of our needs met as quickly as possible we can relax we can open up we can connect more fully we can be present to ourselves and others we can we can listen If we listen, we can be empathetic. We can see the universality of suffering. So this this idea of exploring fully equanimity, uh, though it is something that I uh, look closely at and have for many years and consider a primary practice a primary goal. Um, this current exploration originated in response to a text message I got from a, a really good friend, someone who I knew well in college, and who uh, I've uh, become reacquainted with over the past uh, past year, roughly. And I got a message from them. Uh, I got a text message that said, do you know anything about Stoicism? I imagine it's much like Buddhism. And I wrote back and I said, no, I don't know too much about Stoicism. I've read a little bit about it, but it's not anything like Buddhism. And I he, I didn't hear back from him for, for many, many days. And, um, I wrote back and I said, because I, you know, I felt like I had sort of disrupted his own exploration. And I said, you know, I feel bad about the way I answered your your question. I feel like I might have rained on your stoicism parade. And he said, Oh no, I was happy for your honest response. Uh, I'm just looking for a parade, <laughs> uh, which I thought was was pretty funny. So. <clears throat> Stoicism you know, and I'll keep, I'll keep this brief it's, it's not the the point of our talk but there could be a helpful point or two here Stoicism seems to be an exclusion of something and equanimity is an understanding of something Equanimity confirms Relationship to feeling states, it does not stand apart from them. To suggest that equanimity is tied to understanding is to acknowledge the thoughts and feelings and sensory experiences we are having while simultaneously acknowledging that they are inseparable from our perceptions, that they are impermanent, unstable. And not self that's a lot of understanding so thinking a little bit about stoicism is probably good for Dharma students because it shows us what what we are not trying to do in one place stoicism is described as the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. Described in a different location, it is indifferent to the vicissitudes of fortune and to pleasure and pain. So indifferent is, we could argue, having no particular interest or sympathy, to be unconcerned as one uh, dictionary defines it. So I, you know, as I said before, I, you know, it's important to admit that I have not thoroughly studied the ancient philosophical tradition of Stoicism. So I can only offer a layperson's account. Yet my own sense of it is that it leans toward dismissive, it, um, it, and therefore it can't exacerbate. And therefore, it can exacerbate the illusion that, as Dharma students, we are trying to overcome. Uh, Stoicism seems to create distance rather than integration accomplished by way of avoidance uh, whereas the Dharma's model is one of acceptance those who are stoic or or claim something that we might call stoic possibly do experience less suffering in the short term but because a stoic stance doesn't seem to be rooted in any particular knowledge that is experiential, one might not be able to draw upon that experience in the future to suffer less at a later date. To me, there's a toughness with Stoicism and there's a gentleness with the Dharma. When I think of, when I think of the experience of Stoicism, it's like this. Nothing is happening right now. There is nothing unpleasant in my mind and body. The experience of equanimity is like this. There is unpleasant experience, but I'm not going to push it away. The mind remains in a state of balance, not because nothing is happening, but because we have removed our own reactivity. With equanimity, there's no grasping or aversion. With Stoicism, it seems there is no willingness or ability to feel what's going on inside oneself and therefore also to gain direct insight into that experience. Equanimity includes seeing clearly, equanimity comes by way of perspective not by accidents, not by accident or happenstance, and also not by conventional effort, not by pushing and striving, and not by being tough. In my experience, the path of Dharma is more of a softening, yet at the same time, the strength that comes is formidable. Perhaps in our culture and in many cultures, we have been given a very narrow and also limited uh, view of strength. Perhaps uh, for some of us, the Dharma can balance that. In closing, I'll mention four distinct places uh, in the early teachings where equanimity is given a central role and treated thoroughly. Uh, And I'll just list them. They will comprise the bulk of future talks in the coming months. Uh, So this is kind of a, um, a table of contents for what's coming. And I'll close with a short Uh, short passage so as I mentioned at the beginning I talk about I I talk about this uh, 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 this part of the talk is locations like where where is equanimity located one place is in the ten perfections or the paramis Uh, practices of perfection mind states to be perfected equanimity is number 10 on the list of the ten paramis. Equanimity is also one of the seven factors of awakening. It's the culminating factor, number seven of the factors of awakening. Equanimity is one of the four Brahma Viharas or boundless abodes considered in this context a heart quality. And lastly, Equanimity is one of the universal or beautiful factors of the mind as discussed in the Abhidhamma along with faith, mindfulness, self-respect non-greed, non-hatred and pliancy Equanimity follows pliancy as the seventh beautiful factor of mind Bhikkhu Bodhi writes the real meaning of this word equanimity not indifference in the sense of unconcern for others as a spiritual virtue upekka means equanimity in the face of the fluctuations of worldly fortune it is evenness of mind unshakable freedom of mind a state of inner equipose that cannot be upset by gain or loss honor or dishonor praise and blame pleasure and pain upeka is freedom from all points of reference it is indifference only to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position not to the well-being of one's fellow human beings True equanimity is the pinnacle of the four social attitudes that the Buddhist texts call the divine abodes. Boundless loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. The last does not override and negate the preceding three, but perfects and consummates them. If Buddhism in practice has not always lived up to the high ideals posited by the original teaching this is to be understood as a result of the downward gravitational pull of human nature not as a consequence of any emphasis on apathy and indifference in the pristine Dhamma. The Buddhist texts provide ample evidence that the attainment of Nibbana does not issue in a solid indifference to the world. The Buddha himself the ideal model for followers led an active life for forty-five years after their enlightenment dedicated to the, dedicated to the uplift of humanity throughout Buddhist history, the great spiritual masters of the Dhamma have emulated the awakened one's example, heeding his injunction to wander forth quote, for the welfare and happiness of many out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare and happiness of devas and humans.